The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening. Happy to be here. And a little bit the circumstances of me being here today is that I'm in the middle of teaching a retreat at Spirit Rock. (laughs) And um, and so I'm going to miss the Dharma talk. It's (laughs) 7.30. (laughs) But um, it's very nice to come down here from being on retreat. It's it's very special to be on retreat and and, uh, to be around... There's about 88 people who are on retreat, and so to have so many people engaged in the Dharma in that kind of wholehearted way for these days is a wonderful thing. And so, and to come here and to to be here to talk about refuge is also a wonderful thing for me, and uh, for us to explore this topic of refuge. Um, and uh, it maybe it's good to keep in mind that. Um, the decision to go for the refuge, the orientation to go for refuge, the devotion to refuge that uh, is common for many Buddhists, uh, it's actually a very significant, very significant part of their religiosity or their religious life, their religious sentiment, their emotional connection, their what inspires them the most. And uh, it's probably safe to say that for these many Buddhists who go for refuge, it means different things for different people. Just like it'll mean something different for each of you in your own way. Um, But we are kind of touching into or exploring something which is uh, pretty central to the lives of many Buddhists and considering how it is central and how it might have some central role in your life or some important uh, role in your life. And, um, and as I sit here and think about refuge, um, I, my imagination goes to sitting in Buddhist temples in Thailand and Burma and um, some places where you sit outside at night and all these people around sitting under trees and people chanting the refuges, chanting the precepts, people sitting and meditating and you know, in the dark, cool stillness of the night with lights around. And it has a kind of uh, poignancy and richness and tenderness and that kind of thing that, you know, for me, I, you know, I remember those occasions. And it's kind of like, um, kind of like a, um, like a beacon in the dark or something to have that. That's a wonderful thing. So anyways, we're exploring it here. And uh, happy to see you all. And um, then we'll continue some of the discussions we had from last week then. Um, so there are these three refuges, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, that uh, is the commonly what people, when they do a ceremony or the ritual or the kind of show of, show of intention, uh, is what they go to refuge in. And um, 
so then there's a, some people who might want to say, well, which one's most important? Maybe there's no way of deciding. They, are, they come together as a unit, perhaps. They're all, all important and valuable. Some people might say the Buddha is the most important uh, because that's really the humanity of all this, is in the human person, the Buddha. And this is a human enterprise we're undertaking. And this has to do with people and what people do and people experience, has to do with people's suffering. And so um, we have, uh, and so a lot of that has to do with uh, our being a human has a lot to do with about being in relationship. Being in relationship to each other, to other human beings, being in relationship to the world that we live in, being in relationship to the truth, being in relationship to the values that are important for us. Um, but it, it be, being in relationship is really an important part of what being a human being is about. And, uh, and so the Buddha is something we can have a relationship with, um, maybe because maybe we can identify a little bit more fully to a human being, what a human being has accomplished. Uh, you're human beings, and so you're in relationship to human beings, and here's a very unique human being that we're kind of in relationship to. Exactly who the Buddha was historically is, you know, it's hard to reconstruct. I did an interesting exercise some years ago where I was reading the suttas, uh, these ancient records that purport to be the records of the Buddha. And I was looking in there for confirmation that my image of the Buddha could be found in there. And it couldn't. <laughs> and uh, I had, you know, taken in and constructed a somewhat idealistic idea of the Buddha that probably had a lot to do not only about what I'd learned from my teachers and my Buddhist communities I spent time in, but also my Western uh, acculturation and values. And, and I think every culture, every, every, you know, to some degree projects onto the Buddha some of themselves into it. And they see in that, you know, it would, and uh, you see that in the statues of the Buddha. If you go around, if you go to you know, like the you know, Asian Art Museum and look at the Buddha statues from different con- con- countries, different cultures, um, the Buddha amazingly looks, often looks very much like people from that culture. <laughs> you know, Cambodian Buddhas look like Cambodians and so forth. And, um, and, you know, the first Buddha statues that uh, were maybe made, or at least certain ones that, uh, that survive, uh, were made uh, by, by uh, Greeks who lived in the area now Afghanistan in northern western Pakistan. And, um, and so, lo and behold, the Buddha looks Greek. <laughs> and um, so there's this you know, tendency to project back onto the Buddha and I think maybe, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say you do that, but uh, someone like me who spends, you know, an adult life kind of swimming in this Buddhism stuff and considering the Buddha, um, I did it too. And so, uh, you know, maybe it was accurate projection, idealization, but doing that exercise of going back to the suttas, I couldn't find some of it. Like, oh, it's not here. And then I realized how much I'd projected and idealized. And um, the whole thing made me happy. Maybe happy to be free of my idealization and projections, 
made me happy that those had served me and guided me in a very useful way and they had a place in my life. And, um, and uh, so anyway, so, so who was the Buddha? We don't know. But even so, we do have, uh, to have a relationship to the Buddha. And what is that relationship we can have? And um, certainly one of inspiration, of devotion, of guidance, of um, uh, respect, of uh, all kinds of things that people have in relationship to this. Um, many people, many Buddhists, will feel a tremendous amount of gratitude to the Buddha. Um, because we, maybe we don't know much about him, we don't know exactly what his teachings are, because those, you know, not everything attribu- attributed to him is probably comes from him. So we don't really know. But it probably was someone like the Buddha. And who, whatever he did, he must have done something remarkable to have set in motion that this wheel of the Dharma, set in motion this tradition that comes down to us. And uh, as I glean the ancient records, I'm quite, I feel amazingly grateful that this person took the time to teach, this person did practice, and it's hard not for me to feel grateful when uh, this Buddhism has been so life-transforming for me. It's kind of like, you know, it represents, you know, I'd be a very different person. Sometimes I get a little bit alarmed by the idea of what I'd be if I hadn't practiced. <laughs> and um, so, so, so this is having a relationship to the Buddha. Some people feel since it all began there, the Buddha is the best, the most important refuge. Other people say it's the Dharma is the most important. And one argument for that is that um, the Buddha depended on the Dharma to become the Buddha that um, the, the, the Dharma was, sometimes they talk about the Dharma as the mother of the Buddha, because <clears throat> the Buddha had to connect to the Dharma, discover the Dharma, be changed by the Dharma, and in that change, he became awakened, became enlightened. But it was, the Dharma had to be there, and he said, you know, the Dharma existed before him. It's not something he in, invented, but rather something he discovered that's already kind of built into the fabric of this world of ours. So some people say the Dharma is the most important, and so refuge in the Dharma, and uh, and um, and then I don't know I don't know I've never heard anybody say that Sangha is the most important, but uh, I can say that um, I, if I didn't have Sangha and community to practice with, I wouldn't have practiced as much as I did. That um, it uh, I don't think I would have occurred to me. I don't think I would have had the the, the encouragement, the courage, the inspiration, the example, the modeling that I took in that uh, pointed the way for me or how to practice or encouraged me to practice and to carry on. And certainly there are times when doing this practice was very hard or maybe I shouldn't blame the practice for it. I was very hard for the practice. <laughs> And um, and so you know, I, I have practicing in community is very important. So some people might say that sangha is the most important. So I, I don't know. So anyway, so the, which one? They all work together as a system. But I want to say some words about the Dharma. Um, it's relatively common for people say that 
the primary meaning of Dharma is teachings, the teachings of the Buddha. But that's a rather I want to say superficial understanding of what Dharma is, just the teachings of the Buddha. The, um, the Theravada tradition, the tradition says that Dharma is uh, not much more than the teaching. One definition of the Dharma, it's a liberating or liberative truth. The truth, which is part of liberation, the truth that's liberating. And, uh, and truth here is not a pre- prepositional truth or some idea this is true and you just make a statement, but it has more to do with uh, that aspect of reality, the process of reality that uh, is liberating. And, um, and that has to do with practice and the results of practice, what's called in, in Buddhism is called the fruits of practice. And, uh, and so the Dharma is certainly the teachings, but those who practice, the more importantly, the Dharma is the practice of the teachings and the fruits of the teaching. So um, uh, here are some of the things that uh, the Dharma is associated. Um, so one ancient text says, the Dhamma, Dhamma is the Pali way of saying Dharma, the Dhamma that is freedom from lust, that is non-craving, non-sorrow, that is uncreated, non-obstructing, that is sweet, well-learned and well-arranged. In this Dhamma, I go for refuge. So the beginning of this is, is, is equating the Dhamma with freedom from lust or from greed. That's not a teaching per se, that's a state that we can taste for ourselves, we can know for ourselves. Um, it's a state of non-craving and of non-sorrow. And it's not something that's created, so that's a whole topic in itself, what that means. But I like this, that it's non-obstructing, that it's non-oppositional. And then uh, the last uh, kind of equation of what the Dhamma is does have to do with the teaching, but it's, a, it's the last thing in the list. Um, it's that the Dhamma, the Dhamma is, uh, is, that is sweet, well-learned, and well-arranged. It's a lot of suttas. They get arranged, well-arranged. Well-learned, sweet. In this Dhamma, I go for refuge. So the word for Dhamma, uh, if we use the more Sanskrit word, Dharma, you see the connection more closely. Uh, It's very common in in historically Buddhists to define Dharma as that which uh, holds up, upholds, that carries things. Uh, And the word for uphold or to hold is Dara. So Dharma, Dara. <clears throat> so kind of you kind of see this linguistic connection. It might not be a true linguistic connections, but that didn't bother bother the ancient commentators. They just like to make all kinds of etym- etym- etymological games. But it's kind of but the idea being is more, more important. The Dhamma is said to uphold because it keeps one from falling. The Dhamma is 
um, is said to uphold, to hold up, because it keeps one from falling. So it offers support. The Dhamma is what supports our lives, but keeps us from falling into trouble. So one definition of, uh, or one explanation of the going for refuge that I read once. Once you go for refuge, your mind becomes a crisis-free zone. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? A crisis-free, what, you know, what is it about going for refuge that makes your mind a crisis-free zone? Here's another uh, <clears throat> definition of what the Dhamma is. You see again that the, for the tradition, it's, it's much more than just teachings. The Dhamma is both the noble path, the noble eightfold path, and Nibbana, as well as the teaching and the fruits of the practice. So teachings, you know, it's, it's one of the definitions, but it's actually, the, you know, they're pointing to other things which are more important or, you know, very important. So the Dhamma is the path of practice that we engage in. And that holds us up, that supports us. If we engage in this path and we understand something about Nibbana, something about the deep letting go, that upholds us from falling, falling into trouble falling into danger, falling into suffering. And then here's a, I I like this um, little teaching definition of the Dharma. Uh, The Buddha's uh, foster mother came to him once and said, you know, can you tell me the Dharma uh, in brief? So so that's, uh, then we should pay attention in brief because most of us don't want to read a lot of books. And the Buddha responded this, as for those qualities, like mental qualities and mental states, for those qualities of which you may know, and this is an important uh, phrase, that you may know. So it's kind of the, it's pointing back to you, something we do, something we know, something we can experience and know for ourselves. And the expectation is this, this is something you're supposed to know. This is the Dharma that you want to discover for yourself. Uh, and there's a play, I don't know if play is the right word, but the word dharma can also mean mental states or mental qualities. So it has a wide range of meanings, this word. So this, the word dharma gets repeated in different ways here in this. So these dharmas, these mental states, these dharmas lead to dispassion, not to passion, to being unfettered not to being fettered, to simplifying, not to accumulating, to modesty, not to self-aggrandizement, to contentment, not to discontent, to independence, not to entanglement, to aroused persistence, not to laziness, to being unburdensome, not to being burdensome, If you know this for yourself, you may definitely hold, this is the Dharma. This is the teacher's instruction. So what's the Dharma? So you don't break open the book and you know, learn learn all the lists and all the kind of statements about the teachings. But here he's saying that you discover the Dharma in yourself 
by uh, certain uh, psychological or mental qualities and states, and you understand what leads to those states, what leads away from ones which are he considers undesirable, and leads to what's desirable, and that's that's the book that we learn to read if we want to read the Dharma. So we, part of the reason we practice mindfulness and do this practice is so we can read our own hearts. That's, the, that's where it's really found more than, you know, and the books help us to, as mirrors for our hearts. I don't want to, you know, knock books too much, especially since I write them. But, uh, but you know, it's, uh, it's in, our own, in, our, in ourselves that we find this and these qualities. And so, um, uh, we, we start, so as we practice mindfulness, concentration, loving kindness, compassion, letting go, waking up, seeing the truth, as we practice in this practice, at some point, the idea is that we start seeing our hearts, read our hearts, and we see the difference between one state of being and another a state of being that we don't really feel like we want to align ourselves with anymore, we don't believe in it anymore, we don't trust it anymore, and we now we trust something else. We want to align ourselves in other things because we know something else is better. So, for example, I, uh, you know, many years ago there was someone who said, after that retreat I sat with you, it's been a year, I'm no, I'm no longer uh, cynical. I saw something different. I saw that that didn't serve me. I've known people who carried resentments for a long time. And at some point they saw that I don't align myself with that. I don't believe in it anymore. Boy, did I believe that resentment was important. And um, and uh, I remember one person who said that she carried resentment for her ex-husband for years. And years, kind of fuming with it until she, it suddenly occurred to her that for years he probably wasn't thinking about her. And she thought, well, that was a lot of wasted resentment, a lot of wasted resentment. <laughs> you know, she wanted to get back at him and, you know, but, you know, he was like living his life independent of hers. So, and that, so she realized that was, so then, and only then did she, was willing to drop her resentment or not believe in it, not invest in it. And, and you know, and, People who, people who no longer align themselves or believe in the value of getting angry, but now want to align themselves with non-anger or to loving kindness. People who had enough of greed, enough of lust, I've done enough of that. And I know something better now. I know generosity, I know letting go or simplifying the mind. Letting go of gossip maybe or letting go of lying. Some people are that's a regular part of their life. And seeing what that does to us and how it eats away and limits us. And then see there's another way. And so to practice up to a point where we can see distinctions between different desirable or helpful states and unhelpful states. The states that we want to live by and want to have come forth and those we don't. And whether these lists here that the Buddha gave to his foster mother are inspiring to you, I don't know. But uh, some of them, and it kind of points to the direction, this idea that uh, the Dharma is found in practicing and moving into new states of being, new ways of being. And when we take refuge in the Dharma and are supported by the Dharma, 
it's not because we're taking refuge in teachings, like, oh, those teachings are really true, but rather we're taking refuge in what we've learned and seen in ourselves, that there's a better way to live. We can live with honesty, we can live with attention, we can live with devotion to the truth, we can live with non-clinging, we can live with non-harming. And that this brings joy, it brings peace, it brings uh, all kinds of benefits. And so to see the benefits is to see the fruits of practice, to see how good this is. For people who, uh, some people who start practicing, maybe it's very, they see small improvements and small benefits. But at some point, the benefits become big enough that people, some people realize, the, this way of living now is worthwhile basing my life on. I no longer need to base my life on making money, becoming rich, becoming famous, having the security of youth, <laughs> all kinds of things people base their life on. And they kind of realize that I don't want to do that anymore. I had enough of that. There's another thing I want to base my life on. Another thing that I want to uphold my life, to support my life. And that's the role of the Dharma. So, and then I'll read one more quote. And this is probably the most common uh, uh, liturgical chant describing what the Dharma is. That's uh, probably every day in Buddhist monasteries in Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, they chant this in Pali usually. The Dharma is well proclaimed by the Blessed One. It is visible here and now, immediate, inviting to be seen for oneself, onward leading, and to be personally realized by the wise. And I'm reading this because here again, we see it's not teachings like you, know, you read in a book that's being emphasized here so much, but something that's visible here and now, something you can taste and see and perceive. That's the Dharma. Um, and it's immediate. I think a fascinating idea that it's, it's not like something you have to kind of spend you know, years getting a PhD in Buddhist studies to get a hint, hint to what it is. It's immediate. It's, avail- it's available now here. And I love this idea. It's, it's you're invited to come and see for oneself. <clears throat> There's a kind of invitation. Come and look. Come and look for yourself. To look into your own heart. Read your own heart. And then whatever the Dharma is, it's onward leading. If you get a little bit of peace, that points to the possibility of having of growing into more. So it's onward leading to more and more peace. To have a little sense that that truth is good leads to appreciation. Maybe more is better. More is you know, the kind of it's an onward leading, it moves in that direction, we stretch and open up. It's onward leading and and to be personally realized by the wise. I think that's a little bit of a propaganda or something, <laughs> or something. Maybe it's a better word, but that because um, it implies that if you do this, you're wise. <laughs> Personally realized by the wise, so you want to be wise. So that's kind of a little hook, maybe. So um, the Dharma is something personal, and when we take refuge in the Dharma, it's because we know something that. The, that's, 
And so the, t- the teachings that the Buddha gave, that uh, somehow they are seen as a mirror for something we're learning, something we know for ourselves, we find in our own hearts. So maybe you sit down to do mindfulness practice, practice because the Buddha said so. And you do it for a while and you start, as you're paying attention, you see that certain ways of, uh, uh, some of certain attitudes you have are exhausting or cause suffering. And so you say, you know, maybe I don't need to do that anymore. <clears throat> and you see that other attitudes just seem to buoy you and inspire you and bring a delight and happiness. So oh, this is a better way to live. And then you go back and read the texts and the Buddha says, you know, that, uh, uh, that being angry is a source of, it's like holding a hot coal. It's good to, to put the hot coal down. But practicing loving kindness and coming from kindness and compassion, that's a bomb, that's medicine for the, for the heart and for the body. And then, to, oh, you know, the Buddha said it kind of poetically or something, or said it nicely, but that's what I discovered by just paying attention and noticing. And he, you know, he's onto something that's got you know, these teachings. And so we start seeing a resonance, or it seems like those teachings work well to represent what's happening with us. For some people, seeing the Dharma in themselves or the possibility, the potential of some kind of personal change is more an intuition. It's more like a sense. There's a kind of, some people don't have any real change yet, but they have a clear intuition, a sense, oh, it's possible. Maybe because of the Sangha, because they've seen someone and said, whatever that person has, I want to have it. If that person can do it, be that way, maybe it's possible for me. And so they haven't, experience the Dharma for themselves yet, but they're already ready to take refuge in the Dharma. It's already that they believe in it or trust, trust it enough. I'm going to really dedicate myself to this. This is important. So refuge in the Dharma. And um, it's something much more profound than just teachings. So in going for refuge, considering what it might mean for you to go for refuge in the Dharma, what, are, what have you discovered? What, is, what have you read in your own hearts? What have you, what distinctions about how to live and what to live by and what attitudes to have? And, and what, you know, what, what have you discovered? What's meaningful for you? What do you know for yourself? that is the Dharma, the Dharma that leads to freedom, the Dharma that leads to well-being and happiness in a profound way. Since uh, the refuge ceremony involves going for refuge, I think it'd be good for you to have a little deeper reflection of what this means for you. So I've offered you some thoughts, what, I, what it means for me. You might have some other ideas, or additional ideas or something. But I thought it would be nice at this juncture to, for you to have a discussion among some of yourselves, some of the group here, and share with uh, some other people uh, what your reflections are on this refuge in Dharma and what it means for you. Is that okay? Or do we need to have some questions first answered? Anybody feel perplexed or feel they have burning questions you want to 
ask before we break into discussion. No, it's all good? Okay, so what I'd like to suggest is that um, uh, do it in groups of three. So, I wonder if a few of you might want to share if there was something significant that was said or came out or discovered or inspired by the conversations that you had or your thoughts during it. I kind of suspect that the different little groups had different looked at these things in different ways and it might be helpful for the rest of us to hear some of the variety. I started out with a question in my mind of when I am caught in resentment and I move into the Dharma, the resentment dissipates. So have I taken refuge or have I escaped? (laughs) (laughs) And as we talked, um, I decided that uh, it didn't really matter what I called it. It's how it felt. And and it felt very good. Feels good. Yeah. Uh If I may, the word good is vague. Pardon me? The word good is vague. I wonder if is a vague word good. Oh, vague. Vague. Could you, um, I wonder if you could, could good in the sense of uh, my heart opens. Mm, great. That, that <coughs> That's nice. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. It's straight behind you. <laughs> I really want to thank you to. Hold it closer. To just say something. Uh, since uh, I grew up in India, the word dharma we use in our daily language as doing something right. Mm. Here you say someone, do this because this is right. Or it's, the, or it's the duty. Yeah, which is what is right. So in India, we say, this is dharma, this is right, do this. So how our heart feels, saying lie to someone, it feels not good. So it's not dharma, it's not right. Our heart feels by harming someone, not, so it's not right. So dharma is just a beautiful thing to do something which is right, Mm. something which makes your heart feel good. Nice. Simple. Very nice. Makes the heart feel good, feel right. Nice. And it might be nice if you uh, just not, not, not just I remember it now that if you say your name before you speak, so that everyone we get to know each other a little bit here. I'm Yolana. Um, well, we talked about various things, but the main thing is, like you said, is about the expansiveness, the love in the heart. To me, Dharma is like loving everybody instead of trying to compete with everybody. You know, it's, it's just 
a, a lovely thing to have. Nice. Thank you. Yes, yeah, right. <coughs> I'm Trishla. We talked a lot about how there is nothing now left outside the practice. It's not like if we find ourselves in a completely non-Buddhist setting, maybe a social event, that we can find a way to weasel out of practice. Mm-hmm. Now, now every moment, uh, whether we like it or not, is imbued with a responsibility to practice. Um, so I don't really understand the word dharma because there is nothing but that. So yeah, you you had you were going to say something? No, uh, you. <laughs> I'm Beatrice, and it was a great opportunity to do a sangha with these ladies here. Yeah, and. Uh, I'm just doing prompt. I don't know how, what else to say because I think she said a lot. You said a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody said already. Great. I'm very happy. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And spend it hard. Okay. <laughs> 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 Straight back again. Hi, my name is Lois, and um, so to me, the living from the Dhamma and taking refuge is living from like a a deep insight, or living from your true essence, and um, knowing that when parts of you come up, like anger or you know, not liking parts of yourself or whatever, that those are thoughts and perceptions that you're having and that they will pass. And they are part of you as well and accepting them and allowing them, but they will pass and that you're much more than that. And living from our true essence is much greater Mm. than that. And it's just a really beautiful thing to accept all of yourself, Mm. but live from and um, cultivate those beautiful qualities that are the Dharma. Very nice. And, and it sounds like part of that is to have some understanding or insight that helps you not to get attached to the thoughts and perceptions you have so they can move through. Hi, I'm Terry. Um, I felt like I was experiencing uh, the Dharma just in our group uh, by the short going around and just was so rich and touching and deep and um, awakening. Mm. Um, Beautiful. Nice. So the experience of Dharma in the group this idea that the Dharma is something to be experienced rather than memorized. You know, we can, you know, through practice, through these kinds of exchanges, we're changed in some way. And it's, it's, we're changed by things all the time, but there are certain changes which are dharmic that move us towards what is right for the heart or moves us in a, way, a direction which really, if 
from the inside out feels very meaningful or inspiring or freeing or some kind of transformation. The Dharma has changed. I'm Madhuri, and um, for me, I think our group, uh, it was a uh, good learning, um, but that the exp- uh, what I shared really was my own experience in growing up as a daughter, wife, mother, grandmother, was always giving, and receiving to... F- uh, to give myself that love and kindness mm. is something that I've learned over here. So even dharma to me was being a dutiful to be the re- do the right thing for others. Ah. But it's the realization now that dharma is for myself to mm. the self-realization. Mm. That's been uh, important. Mm. Nice. Thank you. I think... Um, I was remembering during our talk on my Meredith and um, just you're reminding me of how Dharma just feels like this forgiving and compassionate practice. So over and over, it's just there welcoming us and all parts of us and um, allowing us to show up over and over. And it's okay if we forget it and it's keep coming back. Keep coming back. Notes here, but I don't know if I understood correctly. You said unword. A little louder. Unword. Onward. Onward leading. Onward leading. Onward leading. Leading. It takes us. It takes us somewhere that's good. But it's the word is unword. Okay. No. Is this correct? Okay. Thank you. Good. I'm Krista, and our group, we talked about a lot about just kind of refuge as a sanctuary, which mm. we really like that term, and then we talked a lot about harmlessness as well. Mm, fantastic. So, Anne? Um, I'm Anne. Um, I talked about, uh, sometimes you, you, you know, you're gossiping about someone, and you, you know some really secret negative stuff about the person, and you get this kind of shot of energy as you come in with the groovy stuff that no one else really knows, you know. And um, I feel, uh, I, I've been able to, to just take that away, like put that away, just say, actually, that's not, even though I get a lot of energy from it, it makes me kind of special if I have the inner gossip, you know. Um, uh, I, I'm able just to say, you know, that's not really who I am. That's not really what I want to do. It's just like I can just sort of remove something. Mm-hmm. And in our group, people talked about the Dharma's making things simpler, not making it more complicated. So that's, it kind of feels like that. It's like adding something, building something. Mm-hmm. I don't need to build. I could just put it aside. Nice. <laughs> so I, I love hearing all this, that uh, all these different expressions of this inner dharma, that change and the transformation, what you can experience and know for yourself. And, um, and, and no one is now re- referred to, you know, the 12 steps of dependent arising and, 
you know, you've gone into great detail of a great, you know, it's a valid, important teaching, valuable teaching. I don't want to knock it. But uh, the point being that I really appreciate this, how personal this is and that uh, those of you who have spoken, it's, you're talking about something you know in yourself in a nice way. Take that. I just have a question. It seems there is nothing intrinsically Buddhist about Dharma. It feels like it could easily flow into any other religion mm-hmm. in a way that perhaps the Christian texts that I've understood don't so easily flow or other... It feels very open. So when I think of refuge um, as a conversion experience, uh-huh. um, I'm not able to... It doesn't sit right. Because the Dharma doesn't feel Buddhist. Like, I don't think Buddha ever intended to form Buddhism. Uh-huh. So could you just unpack a little bit about if this is really a conversion, do we have to become Buddhist? Um, is that a form of clean? <laughs> is, is, that, is, is that another form of sort of self-identifying with some you know, kind of word where it's really unnecessary? Like she yeah. said, building. Yeah. A construct that may may not right. really be necessary. Right. right. So this thing about you know to be a Buddhist, um, um, for some people that's a valuable identity to have, and uh, I would I want to take it away. When my son was uh, my older son was, I don't know how old he was. Maybe he was like eight or something or nine. There was a little amazing little maybe a month or something where he was a Buddhist. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I got the sense that in his, in his personal formation, development and growth, or whatever was happening among his friends in school and finding out who he was in this world, that that was an identity that seemed to have some value for him for a while. And it, you know, he, I guess he outgrew it. <laughs> Um, so maybe that's not the best example, you know, for <laughs> why someone would be a Buddhist. But but for some people, uh, that association, that name, that uh, sense that they're really part of something is very meaningful, and I, I would just uh, honor that. For other times, this idea of being a Buddhist, it's just convenience. You know, if, um, um, you know, uh, uh, People want to know a little bit about your religious thing, and and you say, well, you know, I'll tell you, you know, all the books I read are Buddhist. All, all my friends are Buddhists. All the podcasts I listen to are Buddhist. But I'm not a Buddhist. <laughs> you know, you know, you do, give do them a favor. Just make it. Just say you're a Buddhist. They just, they just want to get the general idea of where you're at and what you're about. They don't want to get the long list and all the exceptions. And say, I am a Buddhist. Then later you can tell them that, you know, I'm a Buddhist, but, you know, this label Buddhist doesn't really hold so tight for me. I hold it loosely. But, you know, it's, it, you do people a favor. Just, you know, I'm a Buddhist, you know. You don't have to... Um, so I don't know if that addresses your concern, but uh, so this idea of a dharma is not being inherently Buddhist. Um, yeah. Did you have a comment about that? To me, often. Yeah. 
often it sounds like you can just change Buddhism into nature. Into nature, yes. There are some people who translate the word dharma as nature and they find that very meaningful. And, um, but yes, please. And your name? My name is Ek. Uh, one thing I was wanted to say about the refuge was uh, it is not going somewhere, it's coming back. Uh, when I hear this refuge word, I, I don't see myself going somewhere, taking refuge, it's coming back. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. Coming back home to, in a sense, to yourself perhaps, or to the Dharma in here or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, Oh, I feel like it's like the <clears throat> the lotus flower, mm-hmm. and then you kind of take everything out, and we are here, uh-huh. and that's the refuge. That's what I feel. We're the core of what it is. Uh-huh. Yeah. There's no word to say. Nice, nice, <laughs> just nice, beautiful. So I, I think the part of the answer. Part of what should be said in relationship to this question about the Dharma, is it Buddhist or being a Buddhist, you know, what does it mean? I mean, a little bit I feel um, um, very appreciative and a little bit touched by the number of people from India here today. You know, I grew up in a Buddhist ghetto. (laughs) You know, I mean, you know, a little Buddhist enclave, you know, and so... And you know, and and and, um, and it's wonderful to be, you know, uh, and you know, Buddhists in their little Buddhist world think they're special. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then you go to India, and you know, and and you know, it's like so porous and so continuous between these some of the traditions, and and so much of what we think is specially Buddhist, it turns out to be a huge part of many Indian religions and. So this kind of preciousness of Buddhism, you know, like the, you know that some of us have, you know, it's like it's a little harder to have. And as I'm actually touched and I appreciate these things, you're saying for you to say that you know Dharma is not Buddhist, it's just, it's just, and it goes into everything freely. It's very touching, and I appreciate that a lot. So it makes me wonder, makes you know, what, and what does it mean to be a Buddhist? And and you know, and the, going for refuge is in Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha. And conventionally, some people say this is what makes you a Buddhist. Uh, that this is kind of like this, there's something about this tradition, there's something about this that holds a central role in a person's life, maybe. And uh, and so maybe that maybe the answer to that question has to do with the Buddha, that's why he's, he's part of the refuge. And I think that uh, f- uh, for some people, the Buddha somehow points to or represents a certain degree of personal freedom, of liberation, that maybe we haven't seen anywhere else. Or don't know, or, or it resonates in such a deep way in, in ourselves that that's the liberation, that's the example of liberation that most speaks to us or seems most inspiring to us. And so, in terms of a path of liberation, that um, that this is, you know, this is this is the example that I want to follow. And then there's also, but also it, it falls back on the idea that Dharma in Buddhism also means teachings. And for me. Um, I really appreciate the teachings of the Buddha. And, uh, and there's different reasons to appreciate the teaching for different people. 
but um, I find them to be relatively uh, free of the supernatural world, which some religions have a lot of. And so to have a path of liberation, a path of freedom that has this simplicity, this clarity to it, that doesn't seem to bring in a requirement to believe in things which are unseen um, and kind of supernatural. Um, to me, that's very meaningful. I can relate to that myself in a way that I can't to some other religions and there's the teachings of them. But I'm very inspired by the practitioners of other traditions. And this is where the Dharma maybe is shared by people. Um, I've been, you know, you know to, to meet peop- people who are profoundly compassionate, wise, free, uh, who are Catholics or are Muslims or are Hindus or Jain or all Jews or all kinds of things. I just delight in meeting these people. And I don't really want, you know, I don't, when I meet these people and we have conversations, the whole idea of who's Buddhist and who's something else is kind of not that important for me. Um, until we start talking about the teachings. And then it's interesting to compare notes, and, <laughs> and then it begins to get a little more dry, and you know, we, it's, easier, it's easier to kind of, kind of lose the human connection then. So, but how do we na- navigate with this? So, so to be a Buddhist for me, um, or you know, I, you know, as a convenience to all of you, I'll say I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> if, you, if you want the full story, we'll spend the night here. <laughs> and um, you know so for me the Buddha I, he holds a certain kind of um, place of a very full potential possibility of freedom and liberation which I, I feel is very meaningful for me it speaks to me and the teachings I just said they speak to me and they work for me so these things work this whole tradition kind of works for me so the Dharma might be shared the Dharma might flow and not be Buddhist but the container for it and how it, the entry point to it and how it's, we live with it in a shared community in Sangha, um, you know, it seems that this is the place where I find myself that is meaningful. And um, so anyway, that's an attempt to respond to your question. Yes? I find myself more lately that uh, I'm in this uh, place where these friendships, which I've nurtured over the years, that go way back, they don't hold that, uh, they're not important to me any longer. What is important to me is an inner life, as you've mm. described yeah. it. And I know that exists, and I've compromised that over the years mm. by maintaining friendships, business friendships, all sorts of things. And now I find myself on the doorstep of making a choice of committing wholly to the Dharma, the Buddha, and the Sangha. I'm not sure where to go with that. I just wanted to mention it. Yeah, so so it has this very practical uh, manifestation of... of, uh, redirecting who you spend time with and the people you're connected to and people who were your friends before somehow don't touch something now that's important for you and you have limited time and you'd like to have maybe friendships or have community of people who share these deeper values and so and you happen to find them in Buddhist communities and um, 
and you know, you certainly can find it in other religious communities because there are great practitioners in other places who have share a lot of the values. But for you, this is where it resonates. And by the way, I forgot to mention my name is Joe. So we have about uh, ten minutes, and uh, are there any uh, any of this from last week? Your reflections on the whole what I've been teaching about refuge and your personal reflection on it. Do you have any questions you'd like to raise or any concerns with this that haven't been raised yet? Um, I'm in green light, is that on? My my name is Madhuri and uh, just picking up the last question, you know, about is dharma, you know, is it only Buddhism? Um, if I may share my own experiences growing up in India, um, you know, I was educated in convent school, so I faced Catholicism at school, and then grew up with Hindu family, and yet learned Buddhism. So my interpretation takeaway with dharma and was you know, not just duty, but how Buddha, he, through his, you know, learnings and his meditation, his practice, he sort of simplified. It's really the simple. it's how you live your life. It was more of tenets of living your life. Mm. And that's how, to me, I interpreted dharma. This is my dharma, it's how I live my life. And then I would go to school and we would have catechism and things, and I would listen to... Ten Commandments, and I would try and resolve it in my mind as though it is a way of life. It's these values and and things. So, if I kind of take away from the isms, just the practice huh. of how to live your life, yeah. that to me is terrible. Nice, very nice. So, in terms of uh, one of the things I wanted to mention today is that there is a ancient Buddhist text. <clears throat> called the Melindapana <clears throat> that was written some maybe three, four hundred years after the Buddha. And in it, um, they, it offers a very succinct uh, description of the Dharma or characterization of the Dharma. And it says that um, the character, the characteristic of the Dharma is non-harming. Characteristic of the Dharma is not harming. So that, is, that has to do with a little bit of how we live. We live not harming. And in fact, I think all of the Dharma, all of Buddhism, could be subsumed under this one idea. That uh, we're, we're trying to find a way to live a life of non-harming. Uh, and we certainly don't want to harm others. But also we don't know how to harm ourselves. And that the freedom from liberation, that liberation from suffering that Buddhism emphasizes over and over again, is really understood as a, uh, as a becoming free from the way that we harm ourselves. Because there's something about suffering that's very personal and we see the causes of the conditions in ourselves. So the, everything can be, you know, so the city of Dharma is that which is non-harming or the, the path of non-harming, the goal of non-harming. And, and that doesn't have to be Buddhist. I hope it's not Buddhist. But, but does that, that goes along with what you said? Great. Hi, Gil. This is Barbara. Hi. Yes. 
Um, I think when we look at any religion, their values are pretty much the same. Uh-huh. And I think when we talk in a broad terms, like Dharma, that's why we don't see the kind of the line between Buddhism and other religion. Uh-huh. But if we were to get into the teaching of Buddhism, I think there is a diff- I mean, succinct difference between Buddhism and versus Hinduism as well as Christianity. I think my question has to do with um, maybe the lack of feeling of, of, of being more Buddhist. Is it because we're in Silicon Valley? I mean, you have the experience of like living in Thailand and Burma right. with the Buddhists. I'm, I'm sure it's very different and it's very you know when you see a Buddhist. Yes, yes. So, we're kind of Buddhist light here. Well, <laughs> um, first I want to mention, yes, I mean, there are important differences between religion and so say, to, to say that they all share Dharma uh, and to, to imply maybe they're all the same or the same at the essence misses something. And that's also true within Buddhism. Um, there's Theravadan Buddhism, there's early Buddhism, there's all these different kinds of Buddhism. And uh, there's such amazing differences. And some of the forms of Buddhism that exist, uh, I don't find myself particularly inspired by or attracted to. And so it doesn't speak to me, so, but you know, it probably works for other people. And then the question is about the identity of being a Buddhist. And how, how much do we, how strongly do we, do we hold it? Do we hold it lightly? Um, um, I think that uh, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for you. It's um, it's a it's a label, you know that, and and it's a the the label Buddhist is a relatively modern label. That's that you know even the word Buddhism is a kind of a modern invention, um, and um, you know in the last hundred two hundred years. And it's a little bit of a Western invention, these words. And then, and then we associate them a little bit to, with our Western ideas of, some you know, Western cultural ideas of what it means to belong to a religion. I, I love the idea that if you go to Japan, or if you, you look at a, a census of, of uh, you know, religious affiliation in Japan, you know, the population, how it divides up. I don't remember exactly the number, but you know something like there's a hundred million Japanese. Okay, so there's eighty million Buddhists. So there's twenty million more to kind of just describe what their religions might be. They might be Shinto or Christian or you know no religion. So eighty million Buddhists, fifty million Shinto, thirty million Christians. <laughs> 30 million non-affiliated, and pretty quickly you get a sense that you're getting to more than a million. (laughs) Because this idea of affiliation is very fluid in a way that uh, in the religions of the book, the uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam in in the West, is not quite understood so easily. You're supposed to to belong and affiliate to one. And my impression is that in most of uh, Asia, there isn't the same idea that you have to belong to one religion, that's the truth. They're complementary, or just somehow they work together and people can be affiliated and be part of... And it's very pretty clear in, in the traditional Chinese uh, religion 
that nowadays Chinese religion begins to differentiate more. But it used to be, it was just one big kind of pot of, you know, Chinese religion that worked together in a harmonious kind of way. Um, and um, so, um, but you said something about Silicon Valley, you know, so how we hold um, I think that um, Buddhism is, Buddhist practice is like one of the most important things in my life. Um, and because it's so important, I think it's better not to take it too seriously. To not get caught up in identity or get attached to it. Because that goes against the grain, it goes in the opposite direction. So there's a balance between having something be very important and central to how we organize our life, how we live our life, how it inspires our life. And then also, so it's important, but also to hold it lightly. And I think that, you know, uh, we're Buddhism light, not because it's not unimportant, but because the whole identity thing is held lightly, the whole relationship is light. And um, does that make some sense? No, that's very interesting. Yeah, I always view Buddhism as a way of life. Like, yeah, it's just how somebody said it's everything. You know, it's it's every moment. It's how how you your intention, your thought, your feelings, and your yeah. action. All those are part of Dharma. So it's a way of life. It's a way of life, but it has. A, uh, but I wonder, but a way of life that has a certain orientation. And the, and the orientation of not harming is, is core. Um, but not harming, uh, one of the implications of that is also uh, oriented towards a very deep letting go. And that deep letting go is so thoroughgoing and so complete that it's given kind of a, a you know, powerful name. And it's sometimes called nirvana or nibbana or awakening or liberation. And so it's a it's little bit more than just living your life. Um, it uh, also involves living a life that's onward leading, that's moving towards a possibility of a radical form of liberation. Which, one way of understanding that radical liberation, it's um, thoroughgoing, non-harming. So that, you know, for me, that's been a very important part of my life, is this path. So that the path of practice is an important part of the Dharma. And there's a path that has a particular direction, and that's a direction to a very profound peace, a very profound freedom from suffering, very profound, thoroughgoing uh, state of non-harming. Yes, Kristen. Um, can I just, I wanted to remind myself, so, um, if you go for refuge, then you also say the precepts. Yes. Right? So when you say non-harming, does that also um, mean not eating meat? Because mm. I understand the precepts, but I feel like in my heart, the truth of the matter is if it says, I will not kill, and then I eat meat that someone else killed, in yeah. my mind, I have done that. Mm-hmm. I have accepted that knowing how it got on my mm-hmm. plate. And so 
you know, like, I feel like maybe some of it is like, my intention is to get there and I haven't quite got there in every uh-huh. part. And not just that, you know, there's the speech, like I have an intention to be wise without my speech, but it's not always wise, you know. Right, right. Right, so we'll, we'll, we'll spend more time looking at the, uh, the precepts in a couple of weeks, but the... Um, I think that uh, certainly my tendency, but also I think what I've seen often in Buddhism, is um, a, a reluctance to legislate these kinds of things. And so the precepts, living by the precepts, um, is considered to be a training. So one doesn't commit oneself to not harming. One commits oneself to train in not harming. And there's a, it has a different feeling. One is kind of like, like uh-oh, you know. I better go to Gil and confess so he can, <laughs> you know, he can, you know, absolve me or something. And the other, but the train means you're going to do your best. And you, training is because you have to grow and develop into it. It's not something you can just suddenly do. And so, um, so for you, and that's, so it's very personal, some of these questions. And I don't, I'm reluctant to kind of, very reluctant to to legislate these kinds of things. I'm inspired by you that you're concerned with this, that you're tuned into this, and you're concerned about what it means to be, live a life of not harming, and you have this relationship to meet that you described. I think that's fantastic that you do that. But uh, you know, I'm not going to. Um, that's your choice how you answer that question. I'm curious why the refuges are paired with the precepts rather than with the Eightfold Path. Ah. Because it seems like the Eightfold Path is a much more direct correlation to this walking towards yeah. this Nibbana. Great, lovely. Um, I can only try to make a reason up. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard any exactly why, but... Um, um, one of the things about the precepts that makes them uh, very clear is that they're uh, precepts of restraint. There's what we don't do. And there's some people here in the West who kind of go, oh, these Buddhists are always know about what you don't do and we should be more positive. So some people have tried to restate the precepts in positive terms. So for example, instead of not killing, to be compassionate to all life. So in some ways that's inspiring. But it's very clear what not killing is. It's not so clear what compassion to all life is. So the, the precepts are kind of like a bottom line, very clear. You, we, we train not to do these things. And there, you know, just not a lot of you know, wiggle room. Um, whereas the Eightfold Path... You just said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just said that, that you can't legislate. That's right how she interprets it, but the idea not to, not to kill, it's pretty clear what that means, right? Whether, whether that's what you're going to live by, whether you can interpret your life, whether you interpret, you know, we, we, you know oh yes, I'm not going to kill life, but the, what life I mean is people. The life I mean is mammals. The life I mean is breathing things. 
by life I mean, you know, that, that so, so the people cross, you know, there's a line that people will establish. I think with not killing, everyone's going to have to establish a line for themselves. Uh, otherwise we wouldn't even drive, you know, or, um, so, so, but anyway, so I, there is a kind of clarity around, and it's kind of like the bottom line. It's like the, f- the foundation of it all, at least that, at least that. And the Eightfold Path, you know, that's, some people don't have time for it to do samadhi practice and <laughs> and to do all these different pieces of it and and then you know what does right view really mean and so it's, you know so it goes on and on but you know don't steal <laughs> and it's so basic and it's so central and and it makes such a huge difference for our collective life that really you know it's really if if we could just live by the five precepts as a society, boy, we'd live in a whole different world. So that's my best effort to answer your question. Maybe you'll have a better answer for me if you think about it, if you think about it for a while. So, um, so one more, and then we'll wrap it up here. So maybe... So I recently received some training in Dzogchen, which is another form of Buddhism, and it seems incredibly consistent with the Buddhism taught here. Uh Um, So can I take refuge here knowing that I enjoy that teaching and would like to practice that as well? Absolutely. I don't see... You can can take refuge here and be a Christian or Jewish. I am Jewish also. Jewish, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, this uh, this refuge ceremony is yours. I'm here to. Uh, I'm 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 going to trust each of you that there's something that you've found that's valuable, that is mirrored or represented by this Buddha Dharma Sangha refuge, and that you want to do that. And, and this is an appreciation, acknowledgement, a celebration, an empowerment, uh, living into something that you've discovered for yourself. I'm not giving you anything. I'm not requiring you anything of you. I'm here to let something blossom that's here for you. So if you found something here that really speaks that you want to, you know, to live more fully in a way that sometimes a ceremony will do, you're more than welcome to do this. That makes sense? It's the last one, and then I want to. I just wanted to share real quick that um, when I lived in Thich Nhat Hanh's monasteries, every morning we would do the refuge chant, and for the Dharma, it was I, w- I take refuge in the Dharma, the path of light and beauty in the world. So even though I, I don't chant that every day anymore, but today, reflecting the small group, that's, that's what came to mind, so I just wanted oh, nice. to share. Nice, very nice. Thank you. Okay, so um, there's, I have two handouts. One is... Um, a handout about the Dharma and the path of harmlessness, and um, coincidentally is also in the newsletter, if you got it from the newsletter. <laughs> and we, we, we had to cut it down a little bit in order to fit it on the handout. <laughs> so if you want the full version, you take the handout, the newsletter. And then, um, if you can maybe a few, we pass it out, divide it up, and then, and then here, this is uh, some of the things at the beginning that I read about uh, the Dhamma, the Dharma. Uh, some of the quotes that I did at the very beginning, it's here if you want to see those. So maybe someone else could pass these out.
And then uh, next week when we come back, we have two more uh, sessions uh, where we do it like this, kind of, and then we'll do the ceremony on the 23rd. And uh, so next week, uh, the plan is to have a clipboard here. And if you want to come to the ceremony, uh, write your name. So we need to, I need to start collecting the names of the people who are bound to be there for it. So we have two weeks to do that. And if for some reason you don't show up for the next two weeks, but you want to do the ceremony, uh, we still need, I need to get your name, one way or the other. Just find, find a way to get it to me. We'll talk about that maybe next week after we do the clipboard and names. So, um, great. If some of you know how it's done here, if you can stay and help put the chairs back, that would be great. Uh, and otherwise, thank you all very much.